Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Uh, as you know, I'm always excited. Uh, anytime I get to preach the Old Testament, you never stop hearing about it because I never stop loving it. So uh, we are in the book of First Samuel today. Let me grab a pen real fast as this is going to be helpful. Um, man, we've actually been going in a series now uh, through the book. Uh, it's been an interesting series. One of the things we call it, we've been calling it Unusual Suspects. Uh, because one of the things that we see in the book of First Samuel is that it actually ca- captures our imagination. And the way that it does it is it shows us characters and then it gives us an expectation of those characters. But then what it does, right at the moment we're thinking that we are knowing them well, it actually flips our understanding on its head. All right. So what it tries to do is it tries to build up a person and show you, oh, this is what you really know this person. Things are well. And then it shows you the person is actually opposite of what you think. This is characterized at the beginning mostly by what we see as a woman named Hannah. She seems like a drunk woman, a woman who's like totally immoral, until we see, oh wait, this is a very godly woman. The next chapter shows you two priests who look really godly. The only problem is they are thick as thieves, man. They're sleeping with women in the tent. And you're like, wait, what in the world is going on here? So we see constantly... One of the things we see, we see even God moves into this present darkness that they're in. A very, very dark time. And one of the things he does is he uses the uncharacteristic. Someone like a little boy named Samuel. And all of a sudden we see God dedicated to bringing his people out of the darkness. We see that God is no lucky rabbit's foot that we can tote around as the people of Israel try to actually bring God's furniture into battle at one point. Thinking, oh, that'll do it. That'll save us. The only problem is God's like, uh, I ain't playing that. Ain't no way. So they go into battle, think they're going to be delivered. And God says, okay, well, you've got my furniture. Good luck. The only problem is my furniture ain't any good without me. And finally, we get to the end of the book. Or not at the end of the book, where we got last time we were here. Where Israel actually demands a king. A king like the nation's. We saw that in some ways, this is something that the Bible actually prepped them for. But the only problem is their good desire maybe for a king was actually tainted by bad motives. So God says, a king you want, a king I will give. I'll give you a king just like you want, which is probably the key right there. So we pick up and we are in... Chapter 9 today. We're going to be in chapters 9 and 10. 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. And uh, we'll be doing, just to give you a heads up, uh, we'll be doing some lengthy reading sections today. Um, so here's what that means. That means you'll probably want a Bible out because it's going to be helpful to follow. I'm going to try as best as I can to read in a way where you're going to be able to follow along like like very interestingly. But again, these are long sections, so I'm just prepping you for that, all right? So what we'll do is we'll actually start 
Um, we'll actually start in chapter 10. We'll read chapter 10, but we're going to go back into chapter 9, if that makes any sense. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, and this is where we begin. It says this. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on the head, Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over all his people? And you shall reign over the people of Israel, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, and you will accept from their hand. And after you come from Gibeath Elohim, where there is the garrison of the Philistines, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me at Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed on him and prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets? And the man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when he saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell them. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come um, knowing that, Father, many times we do not hear sections of the Bible like this taught. Um, Not as if there's anything offensive or inoffensive in it. We just never hear it. Um, So we pray for your help today. Lord, we pray for your help that we would be good hearers of the word, that you would use it in a mighty way to change us, Lord. Change us. Change us. We please, Lord. I'm a filthy man behind this pulpit. We are filthy men and women that you have made clean through the death of your son. Please, Lord, let it be. Have more of us. Father, we pray for our friends at New Bethel Baptist Church this morning here in our city. Lord, that they would long... For the word of God more and more. We thank you for them. Lord, not just them, for for Grace Bible Fellowship in Dover, Ohio. Lord, may they preach the gospel in their community. May they not look to their, maybe their, their pastors or people like that in terms of, oh, these are the professionals for evangelism. No, Father, may they be speaking the gospel in their homes, in their workplaces, everywhere they go. Lord, we thank you for them. Lord, we pray. For the nation of North Korea this morning. 
the darkest place on planet earth if you looked from a satellite. Lord, we pray, Father, for the communist leaders that are there, that they would see the beauty of Jesus Christ, that the gospel would sound forth amongst that nation. Lord, that you would put in the heart of those leaders, the leaders that actually hate you, to have kind and courteous policies towards the spread of the gospel. We pray for missionaries that would go there. We pray for bravery. Lord, we pray for ourselves this morning that we would walk humbly under your providential hand. Father, trusting that your goal is to do us good in the end. Lord, we pray this and we ask for your help in it this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Before uh, I start today, um, there's sometimes, um, um, whenever you read particularly helpful, like, books, um, and uh, one of the things I try to constantly do is, is, is kind of, like, teach us, like, how do we become, like, better readers of the Bible? Uh, that, that's something that I deeply care about, that we deeply care about here. Josh, that is his heartbeat. Like, that is our heartbeat together. We, we long for that. One of the things that, as you grow and mature in Christ, one of the things that we encourage you to do is move away from things like devotionals, all right? Not because they're inherently bad, all right? But one of the things that's been really helpful for me today is a commentary on First Samuel. What this is, commentaries are people who have read the book over and over again and kind of give you and guide you along the way. Now, here's the thing. Some are really, really hard to read, all right? So if you're like, David, how do I begin to read my Old Testament? What could be some helpful ways that I can do this? There's some books like this that I would commend to you as you read. Basically, it's the name of the book of the Bible and then the the words for you. So this one is Judges for you, all right? They make a ton of these. I would totally, totally totally recommend you want to become a better student of your word this will help you a ton but the reason i bring this up is because there's a lot of there's sometimes when i read and i'm studying where i'm thinking the same thing as the commentator and then i can't remember who thought it first if it was me or him so with that being said this guy was helpful if you hear anything today it was probably him it wasn't me so there you go so with that being said as i thought about this text this morning um and even, even during this week, I thought about the idea that how many of us, if we thought about our lives, like our present lives right now, they haven't exactly worked out maybe the way we've wanted them to, right? I mean, if you could change anything about your life right now, what would it be? Would you not be sick? Would you change your looks? Would you be thinner? Would you be blonde, rocking your messy bun? Y'all cutesy self. Would you be stronger, faster, richer? What would you be? Would you have someone for your husband, someone for your wife? Would you want to feel more loved, more control? The more I thought about it, we have these longings, all of us. In some ways, we wish our lives were different maybe than even the way that they are. And if we're all honest, we all want our life to work out the way you know that we dream it. However, it seems often, as I thought about this, we, we, we try to manifest these things in our lives, but they don't work out. 
And even our efforts make things worse. Maybe that's been you. Maybe you've looked in the mirror after trying to maybe manipulate situations for your own advantage. You know, we all do this. Yes, that is you. And you're thinking things like, I can't believe I did it again. Maybe this manipulation has cost you maybe friendships, relationships. Well, the Bible, interestingly enough this morning, it it understands this human longing for things to go the way that we want them to go. Like it understands this longing. It explains, it acknowledges that is a deep thing in you and me. It is. But whether you are a religious person or not a religious person this morning, I think you can identify with this desire that you want life to generally go right. You do. You didn't wake up this morning and be like, you know, I hope today's terrible. Yeah, right. You did not. We want this. But interestingly enough, I think one of the things that we see in 1 Samuel today is we see not just this desire in human beings, but we also see a remedy for our souls. A balm for when life does not go the way maybe we intended or expected. So whether you walked in here today claiming to be a Christian or not, man, I'm glad you're here. So let's do this. Let's do some dirty work. All right. Let's dive into the text. We're going to start in chapter 9 today. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. So chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. It says this. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. The son of Abiel, the son of Zoror, the son of Bacharoth, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. Oh, he's a rich guy. And he had a son whose name was Saul. Pay attention to that. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From the shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go out and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. These are some hard donkeys to find. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuc, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in high honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. So Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring this man? He's like, Hey, i got to bring him some kind of gift. For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answers Saul again. Here, I I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. He's got some money, some currency, some change, some, some cheddar. And I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Now, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Samuel said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. 
So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up to the hill of the country, to the country, they met the young men coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has now come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as, as you enter the, the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not sacrifice until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who were invited will eat. Now go up and you will meet him immediately. So he gets his directions and they go up. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. It's it's, it's interesting. Y'all ever go to those um, theme parks where they do those like characters? Like if you got like a big nose, like it's like half the page, like... If you got like big ears, you're like walking out of there looking like an elephant. Like, you know what I'm talking about? It's interesting. One of the things that, that characterists do and what they're taught is they're taught to take essentially the most maybe loud feature that the person has and then just amplify it. That's what they do. It's interesting. One of the things that we read here, you might have been reading, you like, David, what was all, that all about? Why, why in the world are we actually learning about this random guy and some donkeys. What in the world is going on? And you know what? I'm glad you asked. Here's why. Because whenever you read in the Old Testament, and immediately whenever you're introduced to a character, and they tell you something about him, you take out your pen and you just circle that bad boy. That is telling you something. Who is the character that we meet here? Let's look at verse 2. What does he say? And he had a son. Whose name was Saul. Ooh. A handsome young man. There was not among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From the shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So one of the things that we know immediately from this guy, remember, the people just asked for a king. And then what the, what, what the writer does is, let me tell you a little story. There was a guy, and he looked the part. Oh, this guy, he was, he was tall. He was good looking. And you're possibly thinking, oh, who's this guy? Is this the guy? And all of a sudden we see we have a problem. What is our problem? We have some lost donkeys. And it just so happens that Saul's father sends Saul after these donkeys. And let me ask you, can he find them? Can he find them? He's going to like, let's just give an equivalent. He's going to Tifton, nothing. He's going to Valdosta, nothing. He's going to Scooterville, nothing, because there's nothing in Scooterville, right? And you're wondering, what in the world is going on here? He has sent Saul on a mission. Saul has, what is he? And he cannot successfully find these donkeys. And then what happens, which is so cool, and I love this. 
what happens is the author begins to pull back the curtain and begin to show you a little bit of what he is wanting to teach the reader. Let's look at verse 15 and 16. Remember, this guy thinks some donkeys are lost, right? He thinks he's been sent on a mission by his father, right? Now look at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you. Whoa, 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 what? Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. That's interesting. What does he say in verse 17? When, the, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, here's the thing. If you read that and you didn't have a question, you might need to read it again. Let me ask you. Saul, he is on a mission to find some donkeys. Does he think that he has been sent by God? He sure does not. Who is he sent by in his mind? He was sent by dad. Yet, at the same time, what's going on here? Who takes credit for it? I will send you someone. This is one of those places in the Bible where the author is not stupid. He's not going to be like, oh, like, I'm going to write Saul sent, had his dad sent him here. And then like, oh, I'm going to accidentally write, oh, God. He's not an idiot. One of the things that the Bible continually does is it holds things in tension. Things that might seem opposite, it holds them in tension. This is what we would call the providence of God. The providence of God. What do we mean when we say the providence of God? Here's what we mean. Here's like a quick little definition. It's the idea that God reigns over all times, all places. He's moving history along in the exact way that he wants it. He's ordaining things in all ways for his glory and for our, as Christians, good. And he's doing so, catch this, in a way that mysteriously still makes your and my choices meaningful. He's not coming like overriding you. Like, it is somehow in his sovereignty in mysterious ways completely compatible with the choices that you make everyday life. So that while while Saul thinks his dad has sent him at one other level, God has actually sent him and he has no idea. That this text, one of the things that you'll see over and over again, if you see repeated through it, and he could not find, 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 you'll see that all the way through, even at the end. And finally, they couldn't even find their king. One of the things we see throughout this whole text is this people need God's providence. They need his providence to actually even operate their lives. And you might be wondering, David, wait, 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 wait. That, that, that's cute. That's a cool little theological term, but, but like, okay, let's just say I believe, uh, God rules over all my stuff and brings, uh, all things. Uh, okay, well, that's nice to know. We were talking about this in redemption groups this week, that there's nothing in the Bible that's just cool to know. 
we talked about this. We said, for instance, does anybody know the longest verse in the Bible? There's two answers to the question. Esther 8, 9. That's the first answer. The second question is, who cares? Like the point, there's nothing that's just nice to know there. It's all meant for my change, for your change. God has revealed himself to humanity. What in the world, what does God's providence have to do with our everyday life? It's because if we step back and look at the storyline of, of, of the entire Bible, one of the things that we actually see is that we like to exercise our own providence in our life. Here's what I mean. You and I, as fallen human beings, love to steal the scepter out of God's hand and issue our own decrees. You might be like, David, I I don't do that. Oh, really? Think of the times maybe you manipulated your wife. Or your husband. Or your parents or your friends. What are you doing there? You are, you are literally distorting reality. Why? With hopes that it will providentially bring you to the reality that you want. Or have you ever told a four-fifths truth? Like it was like maybe even seven-eighths. Like, but still there was something in your stomach. It was like a warm feeling that like you knew it like wasn't fully, but you were like, no, you're literally sitting there trying to convince yourself that it's actually true. Like I said, not even a half truth, like a three quarters true truth. Seven eighths, nine, like, like 15th, 16th true. What are you doing when you're doing that? You are stealing the scepter out of God's hands and you are trying to create your own reality. Parents, your kids, do they disobey? Let me ask you, why do you think they disobey? Even from an early age, what is it they're actually getting at? What are they wanting to do? They're trying to create their, create their own reality, even if it means tuning you out. And here's the thing, we would never admit it, but what happens is this leads to super self-destructive tendencies in your and my life. This is what damages friendships. This is what damages relationships. That you and I have a desire for control. A desire to create our own providence. To steal the scepter out of the Almighty and rule in His place. It's so interesting. Because you might be wondering, David, if that's the case, how do I stop? Like, how how, how do I stop that? Like, if if that's true of me, and some of you feel this, right? There's things you've wanted to get rid of in your life that you can't do. And just like in everything, what do we do? We look to Jesus Christ. Because why? When those things are happening, when you and I are manipulating, when you and I are telling 31, 30 seconds truth, 
We are believing something. We're believing if I don't get this, if this reality does not come true, I will not have happiness. I will not have joy. I will not, I won't have it. And then you get to a verse like Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Where it says what? That Jesus Christ, looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, who, what? I'm going to actually read it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the what? Joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and it is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You might be like, well, David, how does that happen? Because when we look to Jesus Christ, here's one of the things that we see. We see that there is a cross associated with our life as a Christian. You and I, we have, there is a price you will have to pay. But here's the good news. There is a crown. There is a crown coming. And that crown is better than any price you ever paid in this life. That there is a cross, yes, but there is also a crown. That it is possible to have joy whenever your happiness actually seems to be conflicting with God's providence. So you do not have to take up the scepter again, start manipulating, start telling seven-eighths truths. And destroying your own life and the relationships you have with other people. That Jesus Christ tells the truth that it is possible to have joy and happiness. Even whenever things are not aligning. Let me be careful how I say this. Maybe with what is more comfortable for you. Maybe you're here today and you're like, okay, David, so that's good. So how, how do I, how do I apply this? Like, what do I do when God's providential ways are contrasting with my own desires? And if you ask that question in your mind, that is a good question. What do I do when God's providential ways are contrasting with my own desires? One, knowing the fact that it is possible to have joy is huge. That's huge. Here's some things that you can do. Two, perform your duties and submit to those that you're accountable to, even whenever things seem like in God's providence are not working your way. So this might be your local church. Do not give up. No, keep going. Like, walk with them. Submit to them. Walk with them. Maybe for you kids this morning. This is your parents. Whenever your parents' desires and God's providence are not matching up with your own. Sure, this never happens. Here's the thing. Kids, I'm not saying your parents are right all the time. I'm not. But here's the thing. He has placed them 
as those that you're accountable to in your life. And here's the thing. You might think, well, David, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Yeah, you could do that. You are going to pave the way for some major heartache. Because guess what? If you manipulate your parents one day, you're also going to manipulate your wife. And you're also going to manipulate your husband. And you're also, you are going, you're going to continue that. It will destroy you. It will destroy your relationship. But here's the beauty. That you can actually, even when you you suspect maybe your parents might not be all the way right, you can submit to them in a way that is kind and respectful, knowing this, that God is pleased when you do so out out of a thoughtful and kind heart. Wives, performing, continuing to perform your duties maybe as a mom, as, as, as a spouse. Even when God's providence does not align with maybe how you thought your life would go. Vice versa. And you know what? You know what is very helpful? Here, you want to know the thing that's helped most in my life? It's literally, I will show you, it is literally dropping to your knees, lifting up your hands. And saying, God, you know. You know how much I want blank. You know this. You know. But I love you. And if your sweet providence has not granted it to me in this season of life, I would rather have emptiness than have my hands full of something that I would have to disobey to achieve. It's constantly preaching to yourself. When you feel the desire for that, preaching to yourself, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. Even when it seems like whatever dream you might have seems dead, Lord, you know. Mm. And you know what? That's a very helpful distinction because here's the thing. You might say, you might have walked in today and said, oh, I believe in the providence of God. But here's the thing. If you believe in the providence of God, one of the things that, that that flows out of that is joy and happiness. Cynicism does not. Maybe you say, oh yeah, I believe it, but you are as cynical as mess right now. I love you, but maybe you're cynical as mess right now. That right now, there, is not a healthy view of the providence of God. That he rules over all the earth, and then when we lift our hands to him and say, you know, Lord, as much as I want that, May I delight in you. May I delight in your word, knowing that a joy is coming to me and that you might grant this. You might grant this. But if you do not, may I continue to walk with what you have given me instead of me taking up the scepter and trying to manipulate things to my own will. That there is such things as a cold providence, and that's not what we're talking about. A cold providence results in cynicism. A warm providence, what it results is, is joy and happiness in the midst of affliction that you might weep over dinner, but there is some sweetness in those tears. A huge theme throughout this section God moving his people along providentially, providentially, bringing them along a king. 
But it doesn't stop there. Let's look at verse 18. We'll read a verse 21 and then skip down to a second verse. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 18, it says this. When Saul approached Samuel on the gate and said to him, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel said to Saul, Well, I, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. Remember, he just met this guy. Verse 20. Oh, and as for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, eh, don't set your mind on them. They've been found. Literally walks up to this dude for the first time. Saul is excited to find him. Excited to tell him, hey, man, I've got some money. Would you help me find these donkeys? Doesn't even say a word about that. Samuel's like, oh, hey, yeah, well, first things first, before you even say anything, you got to come up with me at the feast. Oh, about the donkeys, don't even worry about it. They've already been found. You're good. Verse 21, Saul, oh, no, verse 20. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set their mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and... For all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Is not my clan the, the humblest of the, clans of, the tri- of the clans of the tribe of Israel? Why, why, why then have you, have you spoken to me this way? Hmm. Skip down to verse 9. When he turned back, with his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. All these signs came to pass that day. When they came to him to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them, and when all knew who saw him previously, saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? It's a... Uh... I read this section, and one of the things I noted pretty fast. Um, so I'm a, uh, I, I'm slowly becoming what's called a disc golf enthusiast. I love, I'm starting to love disc golf. Josh has gotten me into that, and uh, we played yesterday, but we also played uh, last Saturday, and uh, it was Josh, Callie, Hannah, and myself who were playing, and it was interesting. Uh, we went out to the park, and we were throwing the discs. And uh, there was a woman there, all right? And this woman uh, was in her own world. I mean, and totally supports my case that whenever you use your phone, you literally lose all spatial awareness of space and time. Like, she's got, like, two kids she's trying to keep up with. She's also, like, FaceTiming someone on the phone. Like, so literally, she's like, we're getting ready to throw. And she's just, like, walking across. And we're like... And then she stops in the middle. And we're just like... Still talking on the phone, has no idea, no idea that we're there. Turns around, goes the other way. We're like, well, all right, she's gone. Like two holes later, does the same thing. Then two holes later, does the same thing. I'm like, is this woman like following us around? I remember Callie, she's on like hole 10. She's like getting ready to throw her disc and then she's there again. Callie's just like, like, what do I do? Like, she had no idea where she was at. She literally lost, she, 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 she was lost in her own world. Because she was so absorbed in what she had. And in many ways, when you read this text, 
Very likely, if you maybe came from a certain camp or from a certain denomination, you might have immediately gotten distracted. Immediately. Like, boom. Like, just like, like you read a word sometimes, it's like, like, and your mind just goes to something else. All right? And sometimes what can happen is you can miss the forest through the trees. You read a term, and you don't realize that the Bible can sometimes use the same terms, but mean different things by it. I'll give you an example. Look at verses 10 and 11. Of chapter 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed on him, and, and he prophesied among them. Now, if you came from a charismatic background, all right, you might co- associate all the things like that you've grown up with, whenever it says like prophesied, boom, you associated all that with that. Let me just give you a fair suggestion. That's probably not what he's talking about, and it's probably not the point of the text either. That one of the things that we can do is we can get caught up on a word sometimes, thinking, oh, now here's the thing. Let's do another side. Maybe you're in the Reformed camp. This is one that I'm naturally kind of a part of. And you read in verse 9. What does it say in verse 9? When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. You read that and you're like, oh, Saul's converted. Probably not what the author's talking about here. That many times you can hear a word, and what happens is different parts of the Bible, they can say the same thing, but sometimes what they do is they say it in different ways, and they don't always use the same terms. So what is the point of this section? What is he getting at? All of a sudden we know he's like starting to be crowned. Like, what in the world? And if you look at both of the beginning and the end of the section, you'll find your clue. Look at verse 18 again, chapter 9, verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel said to Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they've been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not you and your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamin, Benjaminite, from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of the clans and the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? So what happens? He's telling him all about who he is. And then he throws in this line. He's like, oh, and by the way, who is not the envy of all the people? Is it not you? Which is a cute way of saying, you probably are going to be king. Saul catches the significance immediately. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Why are you, why, why are you talking to me like this? Wait, 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 wait. Like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a hillbilly kid from, like, the tribe of Benjamin. Like, why, why are you talking? And notice what he says. Even though Saul, he's not going to be the king that you think he is. His name literally means... The one you asked for. The people asked for a king. He's like, okay, I'll give you the king. I'll give you the one you asked for. He's tall. He looks the part of the king. Oh, but he's going to have some serious character flaws. But notice what he says in verse 21. What does he say? Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest 
of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin. He comes not only from the smallest tribe, but literally from the smallest family within the tribe. The section ends the same way. What in the world is going on here? What's the emphasis? What's the author trying to do? One of the things we begin to see is God is being consistent in some ways with what he has always done. He is picking the least likely, even though this one looks tall and this, but he's still, sure enough, in character, picking the least likely of the tribes, the least... And you're, you might be, like, you read this. He does it over and over again. He picks the younger. He picks the worst. He picks the, like, not the good guy, but the bad guy. Why is God doing this? What is he doing? And he's continually doing it. I think we're beginning to see something in the character of God, even in this book. I, w- I was... I like to watch movie clips on Facebook sometimes. I was watching a movie clip from Moneyball with Brad Pitt on it. He, like, eats in every scene. Guy just looks cool, even when he's eating. Like, he's got a hot dog in his mouth. It just looks cool. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you, you could do the same stuff that Brad Pitt does, and you look like an idiot, and he looks cool. And it's so interesting. God doesn't pick the cool one. He doesn't pick the cool one. It continues to go against everything we know as human beings. That naturally, you and I, what do we do? We set up everything as like JV and varsity. This is what we do. Like you, maybe even walking in this morning, you might even think, like since I'm like literally up on this platform, like three feet higher, that that like I am somehow like maybe in like a different league than you. Like we do, you're, I'm not. You fight sin, I fight sin. You put on your pants in the morning, I put on my pants in the morning. Like, uh, like I'm a fallen man. But we do this. I was thinking more and more about this. That God, again, he chooses the weak. Why? Why? We've said it over and again. So he can create trophies of his grace. That whenever you're evangelizing with your friends, maybe you're coming into contact with ex-cons, with drug addicts, with prostitutes, with sex offenders, with thieves. And they're like, oh my gosh, like, no, God would never want me. And you're like, actually, you fit the job description. Like, that's literally what God typically picks. Like, that's our story. He picks the worst of us. And yet what we do is we often set up our little JV varsity thing. We do this. This is what we do. And here's some of the results of it, all right? You see someone who maybe, like even, let's say, like, let's use the example, me this morning. And you think, oh, like I'm JV, he's varsity. So here's what I have to do. I have to have a veneer of decency so that I can appear like I'm actually coming, coming up to that. But what happens is, Whenever we attempt our attempt at decency and respectability, it's actually the enemy of the gospel. It's the very enemy of the gospel. You will never see us confessing sin. And if you do, you will only see us confessing sin generally. Yeah, I struggle with blank. 
that we hold these natural coverings for our sins. When we set up this JV varsity system. Trust me, you do not do more wicked things than me. And I probably don't do more wicked things than you either. Like, we, we have a problem and Jesus Christ is the solution. Well, one of the other ways this works out, here's one of the other ways, and you can see it. Whenever you have besetting sins that you struggle with over and over again, here's what that system creates. You trying to fight that by yourself. So let's say you have a recurring problem. Pornography. All right, maybe it's that. Lying, food, gossip, whatever the thing is, you have an internal accountability that never reaches externally. And think about it. Why would God grant you victory in that area if that will only make you more prideful because you beat it on your own? But what God does, he actually sets... He chooses the weakest of us. He chooses the weakest. The ones who are willing to admit... How messed up we are. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe the best thing you can do, maybe you're fighting a particular sin. Maybe the best thing you can do is open your life up to someone outside of your own family today. Let's say your struggle is pornography. Literally setting up a calendar every week where you actually have to submit that calendar to what you did to a brother in Christ who will be praying for you. I promise you, You, him or her, whoever I'm talking to, trust me, you will have a much better fight going on. Why? Just naturally, because why? Someone is praying for you. That God designed us to change in the context of relationships. This is why we do redemption groups. That some sins can be fought on our own, and most sins cannot. They can't. That we see from this text that God, he picks the unlikely. It's not a JV varsity system. He's still going with what he always does. And then we get to the end, verse 14. In chapter 10, it says, This Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when they saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me all that Samuel said to you. Oh, Remember what he was told by, by Samuel. Samuel told him, hey, you're going to be king. Da, da, da. Hey, and his uncle says, hey, tell me what everything he tells you. So is he going to tell him about that he just got anointed king? What does he say? And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken. He didn't tell him anything. Verse 17. When Samuel called the people together to the, Lord, to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up out of Egypt, out of Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God, who saves you from all the calamities of your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. So he's about to select the king. We already know who it is. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Surprise. They like throw some dice. Benjamin comes up. Oh, surprise. 
He bought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. Boom. Saul's clan. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. Boom. Everybody knows Saul is the king. But what happens? But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any other people from the shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. You get to the end of this section and you're wondering, this is the king? If you didn't catch that, I think the Hebrew is written in a way where he actually is like hiding underneath the baggage. He's like in the baggage claim, like throwing suitcases on himself so people can't see him. What's going on? This guy's a coward. We see like throughout the story, you're going to see... Like, just because he's a coward doesn't mean that he's passive. No, he's very active. He's insecure, and he's a coward. And you're wondering, wait, 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 this is the king? He, and if you're thinking this, you're probably on the right tail. Remember, what does his name mean? You ask for a king? Sha'al means the one you ask for? Does he look like a king? He sure does. Tall. Handsome, nobody taller. Let me ask, does he have the heart of a king? We sing from the very beginning, he does not. And we're going to see later on, more and more as we go through this, he does not have the heart of a king. How could this guy deliver? And you know what is so interesting when you read this? And you think of even what God even does later. There was actually another king, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, did he look like a king? Nothing that you would desire. Was he the king you asked for? No, you and I sought out different kings. Was he the king you need? Yes, he was. And yes, he is. He is the king that we need. The king that we can trustfully live under his providence. Even when it hurts. Even when it feels horrendous, lifting up our hands and saying, Lord, as bad as it ever gets, I will continually throw myself on you. A king who we live under the authorities that he's placed over us. A king who we can actually live honestly before other people, being honest about our, our deepest of sins. Why? Because remember, as we say all the time, On the cross, Jesus Christ has said much worse things about you than anyone else could ever say about you. And he chose you. And he loved you. And he brought you to himself. And then after he said all those things, he united you to himself. So now you are perfect in his sight. And we us live under his kingship how? With the freedom... To talk about how we are the greatest of sinners. Not generically. But specifically. That we see the providence of the Lord all over the section. 
him choosing a king, even the king that they wanted, but honestly, the king that they didn't need. We'll see him a little later. But guys, as those who almost are encountered by the same truth of this text, this is what we are to be. Living gracefully under his providence, even when it hurts, even when you have to say no to yourself over and over and over. But here's the beauty of it. You are promised something. Not just that good, but better one day. The deferred pleasure will always be better. Because why? We have a kingdom that is coming to us. So even if you lose the worst nightmare of what you lose, you have not lost it all. You have not even lost technically a penny of what you will have one day. That your worst imagination is a penny lost. In the grand scheme of what God will give you and I one day if you were in Jesus Christ. And that is good news. That's what allows us to change. Knowing that we ultimately will not lose. No matter how much it hurts us, we will not lose. We can be obedient. Because we are promised. A joy that is inexpressible. And so what do we do? In the midst of this, we walk in it. That is good news. Let's pray. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.